Okay. That was easier than usual. Usually I have to beg for a while for you guys to stop talking to each other. I guess you're all sick of each other. Um, If you guys have a Bible with you, please open it to Exodus chapter 14. We're getting back to Exodus. Don't worry about sirens. It happens. Um, And if you don't have a Bible with you, the text will be on the screen. I hope you're in a position to see that. And we'll pray once these sirens go by. We're in the city, guys. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I, I pray that as we open your word, that it would speak to us, that it would not simply be words on a page, but that the Holy Spirit would empower your word, that it would be transformative for us, that you would sustain and encourage us and change us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, a story I tell from time to time, and because it's really pivotal, I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, this was several years ago, and uh, I was standing in the backyard playing catch with my kids. It was a beautiful summer day, birds chirping, sun shining, playing catch, mitts, the whole thing. Right? It was pretty perfect. And into that kind of serenity, that kind of like peace, I was suddenly filled with fear because really close by was the unmistakable crack, crack, crack of gunshots closer than I've ever heard a gun outside of a gun range, right? And, and I did what came completely instinctually. I told my kids, duck. I said, let's run inside. And we called the cops. It was scary. And we got away from it because it was scary, <laughs> Right? As anybody would. But later I was deeply convicted that I had actually gone the wrong direction. Because here I was, a minister of the gospel, and just on the other side of my fence, there was possibly somebody who had been shot and about to die. And maybe needed to hear the gospel. Maybe needed somewhere, someone with them there. And so I I talked it over with my wife, and like every time I would hear shots after that, I would go towards it. But this is one of the fundamental patterns, moves, of being a disciple of Jesus. Is I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but following Jesus means you have to go towards some very scary things. Not always gunshots, but maybe sometimes. Some of you guys are afraid of commitment. Right? Like, like God's calling you towards marriage and, and that commitment scares you horribly. I don't know if any guys have ever dealt with that. Some of us are, are afraid of community. Not just surface community is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being known, being accepted, being loved. Actually, people knowing how messy you really are. It's scary. Yet, We are all, if we're followers of Jesus, we are called towards community. Some of you guys, and I'm going to watch and see who squirms right now. Some of you guys know that there's a conversation in your future with somebody. A conversation where you need to reconcile with someone or you need to repent to someone or you need to confront someone. And that's scary. You're dreading that day. 
My advice is get yourself an ice cream sundae afterwards. That's how I do it. <laughs> Some of you guys are, are hovering on commitment to Christ, right? Like you're, you're right there. Christ's calling you to him and you know it, but you've yet to turn your life over to Jesus because you know that that means laying down some things that you're scared to lay down, some things that, that you depend on to make you okay, you know? Some of you guys are afraid to make an appointment with me to talk about what's going on in your life. You're afraid to see a counselor because it would mean letting someone see something you're ashamed of. Yet, when we look at the pages of Scripture, we are called. We are called to be totally honest and vulnerable, not with just anybody. Some of us are afraid to share the gospel. Like that, everything else I've said, you're like, whatever, whatever. And then like, share the gospel. You're like, I'd rather fight a dragon with a toothpick, quite honestly. <laughs> that is the most terrifying thing I can think of. But anyone who follows Jesus, we're also called to, to share the gospel. Like not at the line in the movie theater necessarily, but yeah, I know. It's all scary, guys. Why is it that following Jesus leads us towards the scary why can't it lead us just towards the beach and a good read? You know, why, why have you noticed this? You follow God in any serious way, and it's going to bring you face to face with the scary. Why is that? Why is that how God does it? Well, we are going to, to, to be in Exodus 14, as I said. We're actually going to pick it up just before in 13, 17. And... God's people are going to be in a very scary situation, and we're going to see that God himself leads them there. And maybe we'll see why, okay? So take a look with me at 1317. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go. So where are we? We're just after the actual exodus, right? The people are leaving Egypt, leaving slavery. So God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Okay, so what's he talking about? That, that, that God doesn't lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. I brought a map and a laser pointer. Get ready. Okay. Oh, you can't see that at all, can you? Boy, that really got blown out. Can anybody see it? Closer people, you can see it? Yes, yeah, see, the people who sit closer can see the map. <laughs> All right. So this is, this is a map of what's called the ancient Near East. This, that, that's the term for all this area. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. You can kind of see that. I'm sorry that this map sucks. Uh, but, but this is, uh, right, like up here is Mesopotamia. Um, this is the kind of the earliest uh, areas where, where, where you have human civilization. You see Egypt is down here. Okay? The way of the sea of the Philistines is this. They're coming out of Egypt. This is the land of promise. This is Canaan, the place that God promised to Abraham and is going to give to the people. Right? That doesn't seem like it's that far. But he doesn't take them that way. Why? Because in order... 
to deliver on this promise of giving them the land of Canaan, he has to take them to a really tough neighborhood. This up here is Assyria. This is like the the ancient world's Nazis. This is the most powerful empire uh, before the Babylonians who are actually over here. You have the Hittite empire that comes all the way down to here. You have the Mitanni empire, right? And all of these are as powerful as Egypt. And then in this area, you've got the Canaanite city-states, all right? These cities that are states unto themselves with some very powerful militaries with fortified city, fortified walls around them. And by the way, they've fought a lot. They have seasoned veteran militaries. They, this, is, this is the big leagues. This is the NBA of military. And what does God say? He says, I'm not going to take them this way. Why? They're not ready. If they see war, they're going to go back to Egypt. Okay? So to deliver his people, he has to take them there, but he knows they're not ready, so he, he, he takes them a different way. He takes them down this way into the Sinai wilderness. There's no fortified cities there, <laughs> right? They need to warm up. They need to get used to this stuff. So whatever God has going on, the reason that he, he is going to lead them into this frightening situation later in, in chapter 14 it's not because he's like, hey, I don't care about my people. We see he cares greatly about his people. These, this is a bunch of slaves. These are not warriors, right? And so we see his, his care for them is that his end goal is to bless them. But he needs to get them there gradually. So, so whatever the reason is that he leads his people into this scary situation, we know that his end goal is what? It's to bless them. I used to have a... Um, a Labrador. Some of you guys met Harriet. She's been dead a few years now. But Harriet was a very sweet dog and incredibly neurotic, afraid of everything. She was afraid of somebody once, you know, did the flaming bag on our porch. Instead of sticking up for, like, the family, she went and hid under a bed. Thunderstorm, hid under the bed. Fireworks on 4th of July, she's a mess. She's afraid of everything. Okay, and so, but she's a water retriever, and so I knew that she would love retrieving in the water. <laughs> she's a water retriever. And so I remember the first time I took her, I was like, she's gonna love this, because she loves chasing the ball. And so I took her, I thought she'd, I thought she'd see the water and it would just click. You know, I'm a water retriever, here I go. You know, but she was afraid of the water. I was like, oh great, she's afraid of the water. How am I gonna get her? So I was like, all right, Harriet. And I was like, you know, trying to take her to the water and she's like doing this thing, right? Labs are real strong, so she's resisting successfully. And so then I was like, okay, I just took the ball and I put it right next to the water and she did this number, you know, where she's just like reaching real careful. And then I put it just in the water and she, she dared to go a little further and then she got her paw wet and then a little further and she got it, you know, a little higher and then it was up to her elbow if that's what it's called on a dog and and I kept on going just a little like she was scared of the water she was terrified but she can't resist getting the ball right and so I'm leading leading her further and further into the scary until finally it's up to her chest and I see the moment when she can't touch and she goes into full panic freak out like flailing in the water but as she flails her webbed paws catch and she 
figured out. And we're like, this is all a split second that she could swim. And she's like, oh, oh, it's on and popping now. And she's bringing me back the ball and I'm chucking it. She's like, yes. Like, why did I lead her towards something that scared her? It's not because I don't love her. It's because I wanted her to know the blessing of water retrieving. I like it myself. You guys could throw a ball for me sometime. <laughs> That's kind of true. It sounds like fun. <laughs> but the thing is, is whenever, whenever we find ourselves facing that fear, whether it be a fear of being vulnerable or a fear of you know, financial catastrophe or a fear of physical danger or, or whatever, we might be like, what's up, God? Like, this is scaring the pants off me. And we might forget the character of God and say, oh, it's because God has forgotten me. It's because God doesn't care or because it's like, you know, he's like a cackling lunatic just messing with me. Ha, 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 how do you like this, kid? That's not the reason. It's because he wants to bless us. And that, that's why he's taking his people to this scary situation. It's his end goal is blessing. So, First of all, God leads his people into the scary to bless us. Now, let's get into to chapter 14. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Okay, so what's God saying? He's saying, get yourself into bad strategic position to tempt Pharaoh to come after you. God is baiting the armies of Pharaoh out. Okay? And... Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? They're like, we let our slave labor force go. Why? Just because God killed our firstborn? Doesn't seem so bad. They quickly forget. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. Okay, so a chariot doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but they get mentioned several times there, Right? Just so you know, a chariot at this time was the zenith of military technology. It was, they were not only expensive, right? You had to like train people and build them and have enough horses. It was drawn by a team of four horses. These were large chariots. Uh, You'd have spearmen on them and archers on them. And these were very likely scythed chariots where you have uh, three-foot blades on either side. And so when they go through lines of infantry, it works something like a blender, okay? I was trying to think of what it would be similar to. It would be similar to all of us, like let's say we had hunting rifles or whatever and had never used them, and 600 helicopters, like 
war helicopters come overhead. It's kind of that much of an advantage. Okay? So yeah, there was a million Israelites, but they had their animals with them. They had their women with them. They had their children with them. Don't take offense. Women weren't thought to be able to fight back then. Uh, they had kids with them, right? This was catastrophic to be caught by just 600 chariots, okay? And we see, like, remember, they're going to have to go fight, right? They're going to have to defend themselves when they go to the land of Canaan. And let's see how they deal with their first taste of seeing someone coming at them armed and in anger. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. So this is a cue from the writer, Moses. You're supposed to imagine this visually. They lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? This is my grandmother's voice when she got really hysterical. So anytime they do this, I picture my grandmother's voice. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Just let us be slaves. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That's not exactly like tally-ho or anything like that, is it? They're not forming up. They're not like, okay, there's lots of us. Let's form ranks. Let's do something. Save the women and children, whatever. They panic. They freak out. They say, let's be slaves again. Okay? So that's where they are. Does that sound like a military force that's ready to go to that tough neighborhood and defend itself against the city-states and walled cities and all that? Not hardly. It shows you exactly where they are. Now, here's another thing that... uh, we probably don't understand, but an ancient reader would have understood. I want to show you another map, because you like them. Here we go. Okay, so uh, I don't know if you guys can see this. This is the Red Sea right here. And this is thought to be the area where God tells his people to go and encamp by. Anybody with military, anybody read Victor Davis Hanson or anything like that, former military? All right. Is it a good idea to take, your mili- to take your army and back it up to a body of water? No, that is disastrous strategy. You've cut off, you have no escape. So if you're caught out of formation or anything like that, and the right move would be to withdraw to a stronger place, you can't. You've got the sea at your back, right? If you were a general that led your people there, led your army there, you would be executed for incompetence. That's exactly where God wants his people. He puts them in disastrous, no escape situation. He brings the scary, doesn't he? Why? If this people is supposed to become a military force capable of defending themselves capable of taking on the the Canaanite city-states, can they do so right now? They need to grow a lot, don't they? They are losing it. They're not putting up a fight at all. God leads his people into the scary, not only to bless us, but also to grow us. Um, 
you know, one of the things that I uh, hate and honestly scares me and I'm very reluctant to do is to ask for help with anything. Just to give you some idea, there was one time, so I, I uh, you know, did not come from a family that could afford to like give me a car or anything like that. So I was dependent on friends for rides for my teen years. And one time a friend said, oh, you always need rides. I was like, no, I don't. And I walked seven miles with my base amp rather than ask, you know, humbly for a ride. Because that's just how I am. So one of the things that really scared me about becoming a church planter is, you know, like you have to go and ask people for support. Do you guys know what support is? Well, there's one reason why we didn't close our doors in the first year. It's because I raised support. And it means you go to people outside the church and say, will you help us? Give us, uh, you know, pray for us and give us money so that we can keep our doors open. I found this to be a terrifying and humiliating experience. But there was something that allowed me, because I, I ended up raising support for many, many years. Hopefully, not anymore. Right, but uh, there was one, there was one incident that kind of grew me, and I was able to do it. Now, my my prior industry was music, and when I started raising support, the music industry had completely fallen apart. Not that we were ever rich, right? But I knew one guy, call him an acquaintance, really, not a not a close friend, who was in like a multi platinum band who had some money. So I, I asked him around to coffee, and, you know, it, I was clear, hey, I want to talk to you about what I want to go to do, do in Denver. And I remember being at this coffee shop with tables. They were literally this size. It's like you could fit a mug on it. And so we were sitting either side of this tiny little table. And I had been coached by another guy who was a, a planter, and he was one of these, like, sociopathic entrepreneurs, you know, the type. And he said, just ask for the moon. Just ask for the moon. What's the worst they could say? No. And so I was like, okay. I'm sitting there like, just, okay, just ask for the moon. And I'm telling them about what we're going to do and, and all this. And, and then so finally I, I say, I said, so I would like you to support us in the first three years at $15,000. And when I said it, I swear to you, the room lurched on me. Like I felt like the room had moved so much so that I felt myself falling out of my seat and I grabbed that tiny little table and like spilled the coffee and I, I looked at him like stunned that I had said it. And he looked back at me stunned that I had said it. And he said, no. He said, it's a lot of money. I was like, like I was in shock, right? You guys thought this was going to go different? Like he would say yes? No, it was like the most humiliating experience I've ever had. I've never gotten over it. And still, to this day, when I'm in the shower sometimes, I relive the moment and I go like this. <sighs> so if you guys see me, just, <sighs> that's what's happening is I'm reliving that moment again. <laughs> but here's the thing. Every support ask after that wasn't nearly as bad. I was like, man, nothing could ever be that bad again. And so it's almost like an inoculation against it. And I was able to do it. It grew me, even if it damaged me. 
God doesn't start his people on the city-states. He starts them with one of the most powerful militaries there is, Egypt, the wor- and puts them in the worst position possible. Why? To grow them. They're, they know, hey, anyone we face after this is not going to be as bad as this if they get out of it, right? But it may sound like I'm saying, hey, when we, when we face the scary and God's calling us to it, you just kind of open a can of courage and, and go for it, right? And maybe sometimes that works, but, but there's a real key aspect to this. Look with me at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. I, I feel like that could be translated, shut up. Guys, just shut up. That's literally all you have to do. Can you manage it? (laughs) The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So they're in disastrous position. The crack unit of, of, you know, Tomahawk helicopters is coming after them. God says, don't worry, all according to plan. Verse 19, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. We were told earlier about the pillar of cloud and fire, but that's God's manifestation of his presence. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So this is known as a rear guard action, okay? So when you have an army in bad position, what a general will do or commander will do is have a contingent take up defensive position and you usually lose those people and and the rest of the army can get away. So we see God here fighting as a rear guard. Okay. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So uh, forgive me for being a nerd, but I I read a lot of military history and ancient military history. So this is fun for me. Okay, so in the in ancient battle, as in modern battle, the whole key, especially in ancient battle, was stay in formation. If you stay in formation, you are formidable. You you have you have each other's back. If you lose formation, right, you are very, very vulnerable on a battlefield. Now, the problem with staying staying in formation is that everyone was afraid. 
and you had to control the fear. And if, if fear overtook your army and they panic and they get disordered, that is called a rout. Okay? What we see here is that not only is God fighting his rear guard, he then routes the Egyptians. He, he, he sends them into disorder. He breaks their formation and they're in panic. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So God not only fights as a rear guard, he not only routes the Egyptians, but he destroys the army and protects his people. The, the wall on the right and left, it's almost like God has given them fortifications to keep them safe. And then here's the, here's the, uh, here's the, the, the kind of bow on this section. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Okay, so they had to fight many more battles after this one. But for this first battle against this incredibly formidable opponent, what does God show them? He shows them he's an army unto himself and he's with them. So even if he doesn't fight like this, even if he lets them more and more fight their own battles, that God is still with them. Making sense? Okay. By the way, I don't know if this is of interest to anybody, but sometimes critics will, you know, skeptical critics will say, well, this isn't recorded in Egyptian history. Does anyone care? Someone, someone cares. Okay, Brooke cares. Okay. So... That, that's, hey, we, we don't think this ever happened because this incident, the exodus and the defeat of the, the armies is not mentioned in Egyptian history. All right. So that's sort of the same thing as saying, you know, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We doubt it ever happened because it's not mentioned in the works of Michael Jackson. Right? Like, like it's such a big event. Surely he would have talked about it. Like, not necessarily. It wasn't what he was writing about. Also, you know, if you go, uh, let's say, I don't know, to the Boston Garden, right, where the Celtics play. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to see any banners from, like, 2001. You know why? Because they had, like, a 30% winning record. They're not recording a season of disaster. Okay? They only hang the championship banners. The, the, uh, Egyptian history is the same way. It's called a court history. They only record their glorious achievements, not their humiliating defeats at the hands of a slave people, <laughs> right? Okay, anyway, why did God lead them into this incredibly scary situation? Well, we know he wants to bless them. We know that he needs them to grow, but it's also he led them into the scary so that they could learn to trust him, that this God is with them. That even in the most hopeless of situations, you're back against the sea, you know, uh, in complete disorder with, with this death machine marching towards you. God deliver you right out of it. He leads us into the scary to teach us to trust him. One of my favorite stories in the Bible 
is in the book of Daniel. And uh, this, is, this is during the exile when, when the Jews were, were taken from their homeland. And there was three uh, Jews in particular, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were serving in the, the King Nebuchadnezzar's court. And, uh, you know, the Babylonians were pagans. And they, they set up a, uh, a golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. And it was the law that you had to bow down and worship the statue whenever this certain music struck up. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not do it upon pain of death. And it gets back to Nebuchadnezzar that they hadn't, and they refused to bow. And he says to them, I will throw you in the fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? I love their answer to him. This is what it looks like to trust God. They say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he doesn't, you should know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. They're like, God can. God will. But even if he doesn't, we're not afraid of you. We're not giving in. We're not knuckling under. We're trusting God. Don't we face that fear? When you're going to actually show the vulnerable part of you to someone, there's that voice of fear. Don't do it. They'll hurt you. They'll reject you. They're going to use this against you. You can't share the gospel with that person. They'll reject you. It'll be humiliating. You'll be a pariah. You can't move towards community. If you get too close to people, they're going to find out who you really are. They're going to find out you're a mess. They're going to find out you're difficult. They won't want you around. That voice comes. Our fear speaks. But we have a God who's with us. We have a God who opens up the Red Sea. We have a God who destroys armies. We have a God who raises the dead. And that God is with us when we're facing our fear. When we're facing something scary, it's not. Because God is against you. He wants to bless you. He wants you to grow. And he, he wants us to learn to trust him. Listen, you cannot be a disciple and a coward. It doesn't work. If fear controls you, you're not going to be much use to the kingdom. You're not going to grow much in Christ. You're not going to experience much freedom. You're not going to experience much blessing. God wants so much better for you. He leads us into the scary to bless us, to grow us, and to teach us to trust him. It's like um, when, when my friends taught me to surf. Right? Like I, I lived for some time in Southern California, and and I, I, I learned by accident because they, they, my friends were surfers. I would go hang with them at the beach and I'd kind of like just swim around. And one day I was like, hey, can I try it? And my friend just gave me his board and said, go for it. Now, they didn't start me at like a, a nice, easy break. It was one of the harder breaks, a place called San Clemente State Beach, uh, one of the harder breaks in Orange County. And, and I was like, okay. And so I take the board out. And, you know, those of you who have ever tried this, you, you've had this experience of, you know, at first it's okay, you're walking out, and then, you know, kind of gets up here, and then, 
And then you kind of have to get on and paddle, and you're like, oh, a little breaker, no problem. But then the first time you see a real actual wave, and when I saw a first real actual wave kind of form up over me, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to die, right? And, of course, you get washed out by it, and you come up gasping for breath, and here's another. And, and by the time you fought your way out, it's terrifying, it's exhausting. I got out there, I was like, that was hard, those waves were so big. My friend was like, yeah, it's like a foot and a half, two feet today. Yeah, yeah there's some waves. It's like two feet. I thought I was going to die. But here's the thing. You got to go right towards that scary, don't you? Why? You'll never surf if you don't. Right? If you want to ride a wave, you got to get past them first, don't you? This is the idea. Is that God wants us to move towards the scary, not... Not, not, not to bum us out, not to destroy us, but to bless us, to grow us, to teach us to trust him. Think of what you miss out on when you let fear rule you. You're afraid of, of, you're afraid of moving towards commitment? You'll never really have that intimate attachment with someone else. You're afraid of moving towards community? You're going to go through life alone, not letting people know you. You're afraid of having that tough conversation? It's too scary. Well, you're, you're going you're gonna to suffer the, the awkwardness in that relationship forever after. You're, you're not going to be able to heal relationships. You're not going to be able to maintain relationships. Fear of turning your life over to Christ, of surrendering and committing. Well, I mean, you miss out on relationship with Jesus and all that he wants to give us in terms of eternal life and blessing and being with us. You're too afraid to... Get marriage counseling or, or, you know, set up a meeting with one of our deacons or myself, you're, you're not going to ever come to the kind of freedom and peace and, and, and improvement that, that God wants for you. We need to move towards the scary because God wants to bless us, grow us, and teach us to trust him. Please pray with me. God, I pray that you would make us courageous followers of Jesus. That we would not let fear rule us. That we would remember that we have a God who is with us. That you intend good for us. That you walk with us. That you are able to overcome any obstacles. I pray that this week you would give us the courage that we need to move towards these things that scare us. Jesus' name, amen.